0: All right, so we're going through Romans 8, and we're at the fifth verse of Romans 8. And up to this point, as we've discussed in the previous weeks, but for also for those who were not here, Paul, in this just magnum opus of a letter, up to this point, has been speaking about the doctrine of justification. Justification. To remind us, What is justification? Simply put, justification means to be made right. We don't use the word justification a lot in our present day, but you ever use Microsoft Word and then you have to move the text and align it to the left? That's called justify, that's called justify left. And what it means to be justified left is that every single word and sentence and paragraph is lined up just right to the left-hand edge. You're making your last-minute essay justified to the left, justified according to that edge. And to be justified to anything is to be made right. When you go to a store, and you, or you, you, know, you, go to, uh, you go to Woody's, and you pick up the... I don't know what you get at Woody's. I've literally never been to Woody's. What should, you know? What? Sure, wraps, which we have today, not from Woody's, but from Costco. So remember to join us for fellowship after. You get a wrap. You don't just walk out the door, or do you? What do you do? You go to the lady at the front, or a man, and you justify yourself by swiping your little swipey. And now, you and, you and the, the dining services of Rutgers are now justified. You are now made right before the eyes of the Rutgers bureaucracy. And Paul speaks, of course, not of word processors or of dining services, ladies, but he talks of justification before God. He talks about being made right before God. And why does he talk about that? Because we are very clearly not right before God. Not only us, but all of humanity, all of mankind has fallen short of the glory and the expectations and the law of God. And Paul's greatest concern, and indeed all of our concern, should be how can I be made right with God. And so up to this point, Paul has been talking about the law, the law of God, the law that we read in the Old Testament, the law law that is written on the hearts of every man, woman, and child on this planet, regardless of if you know the Bible or not. And we all have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. Why? Because God has written that law upon our hearts. That's what Paul goes through in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And yet, even though we know the law, Maybe we don't know the words, but we know that if I take a knife and I stab someone with it and they die, you don't go, hmm, I wonder if that was good or bad. When we, um, when we, when we steal or when we gossip or when we lie, we know deep in our hearts. Maybe we've become desensitized to our sin, but we know that we are indeed sinning against whom perhaps some of us have suppressed that truth. But um, the law of God is written in our hearts. We are without excuse. And so we need to be made right with God. And so how are we going to accomplish that? Well, uh, every religion in the world has said, here's how you can be justified. You need to live a good life. You need to be a good person. You need to be kind to others. Give to the poor. And then you're going to gather up enough points And then you can cash in, and you can be right with God, and you can get your way into heaven. Another 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 perspective is, what's the point? What's the point of being justified before before God? Does God even exist? And so live your life the way you want to, and live and and, um, yeah, but just like be nice to people, be kind to people. but that's, whatever, whatever it means to you, you can go ahead and do it, even though we all have a consensus about what it generally means. But we find <coughs> that, and Paul expresses this in the book of Romans, that that is not enough. That is not enough. That is not even close to enough. There, uh, when the ruler uh, when, when a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he tries to test Jesus and he says Jesus what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus asks him hey you know the law what does it say in the law and the man says well uh, he summarizes the law into the two main tenets right, love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus says then do it Why does Jesus say that? Why does Jesus challenge that man's challenge? Well, he knows that we can't do it. We can try to do it, but nothing we ever do will ever amount to something that will fulfill the command of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so what hope is there for us? What hope is there for us to be justified before God, let alone justified to each other? The good news of the gospel is this, that it is not us who justifies ourselves. Because if we were to justify ourselves, there would be no hope for us. But there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It is God who does this. It is God who accomplishes this. It is God who has saved you from yourself and has brought you into a relationship with God. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not a work that we do on our own. It is a gift of God. And so Paul very clearly lays this out and he and there's there's no gradient here for Paul. It's either you are just you are condemned and you are without hope, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins, or you are justified, and you are saved, and you are in the spirit. You have been saved by grace through faith. There is no condemnation. Right? It's one of those two things. There is a very clear duality that is happening in Romans, specifically in Romans 8. (coughs) And Paul, in order to drive home this duality, continues on in Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans 8 verse 5. And, and he separates all of humanity into two camps. Those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. Now, he's not talking about, in, at least in this verse... His main point, we'll talk about the consequence. What is the consequence of living in the flesh? What is the consequence of living in the spirit? But specifically in verse 5, he is just laying out the fact that there is a distinction between those who walk in the spirit and walk, those who walk in the flesh. <clears throat> right? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Let's take. Let's really. Let's really dig into this verse, right? Uh, the Greek word for live in this particular verse is not really so much live as to be. It's the Amy verb. If you've been with me a long time, you know Amy. Okay. Uh, the verb live is more literally translated to be. So like it's 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 for those who are according to the flesh. So what is that getting at? It's not, really, <clears throat> it's not talking about a lifestyle. It's not talking about decisions that you make. But specifically, it's talking about who you are at your core. Who you are in your being. What makes you you. Okay. So those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So what is Paul saying? Either everything that you are Everything that makes you you is either of the flesh or of the spirit. Who you are fundamentally, I don't know why I did that, (laughs) who you are fundamentally is one of those two things. And then uh, the second verb in this verse, set their mind. That's, That's a pretty good translation. It could also also mean to be intent on, to set your intentions upon this. And so, if you are of the flesh, if you are according to the flesh, then your goals and your intentions, what you look forward to, are going to be things that are according to the flesh, and vice versa for those who live according to the Spirit. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be according to the flesh? What does it mean to have your being be according to the flesh. And why does that mean that we set our minds upon the things of the flesh? Well, logic will tell you, and culture will tell you, and our present day age will tell you that who you are and what you are determines who or what you set your mind to. Who you are and what you are determines who or what your intentions go toward. To use big boy words, our ontology breeds our epistemology. There's like two of you in this room who understood what I just said. But our ontology breeds our epistemology. In other words, our identity, who we are, Leads, uh, leads to what we know, who we know, and how we know it. <clears throat> and culture says that it can only go in this direction. And we see that very clearly in our present day age uh, with this collective cultural obsession with authenticity with this obsession in our culture today with living your true self. You've all heard these words in the past, probably 30 minutes, like 30 like days, not 30 minutes. Um, You've heard these words in one sense or another, right? Be true to, it's, it's the Disney thing, right? That's right, right? It's like, be true to who you are, right? Be, follow your dreams, follow your heart. Because if you do that, then you'll unlock who you really are. You're gonna, if you, <laughs> Really, don't give me that stank face, okay? <laughs> who I really am is depressed and in hiding. Uh, <coughs> you're, you're, <laughs> the culture says who you are. You need, to fo- you need to follow who you are and your authentic stuff, whatever you think that is. <coughs> and uh, I'm actually going to un- unpack this a little more in the following weeks, but I'll just say this. There is nothing new under the sun. And though today we have very specific words to talk about very specific topics, talking about very specific ways to address the authenticity of the human condition, the you know, addressing your true self, unlocking your true potential. This has been going on since the very dawn of creation. And when Adam and Eve approached that tree with a serpent whispering in their ear, did God really say that? Doesn't that look good for you? Doesn't that look good to you to eat? And if you eat it, you're going to unlock who you really are. God's only telling you not to eat this because he doesn't want you to be like him or he, He doesn't want you to be happy or he doesn't want you to achieve your dreams and achieve your potential and all other BS like that, right? That is what the enemy, that is what the serpent whispers in our ear. If you do this, you'll be really happy. And God is telling you something else because he doesn't want you to be happy. And the lies of the enemy have been echoing since Genesis chapter 3. And continue to this day and will continue until Jesus returns to vanquish the enemy once and for all. But, and so culture says who you are determines what you do and what you set your mind to and what you're capable of accomplishing. And so, what does it mean to live according to the Spirit? If that's what it means to live according to the flesh, to live according to what I consider to be my authentic, true self—who I, who I am, who I can perceive myself to be—that you know, to live to that standard, to live, to live according to that law—if that's what it means to live according to the flesh, to be according to the flesh, what it mean, What does it mean to be according to the Spirit? Well, what I said earlier that living according to the flesh is ontology, breeding epistemology. It's who you are leading to what you know and how you know it and how you go about acting what you know. But those who live according to the spirit live a completely flipped-flopped reality. I think every year I recommend this book. It's called Knowing God, J.I. Packer. It's a dense, big boy, and so uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a bo- it, it's a banger of a read, but it does require some sit-down. If you're not going to read the whole thing, I really recommend you read at least the first three chapters. If you read the first three chapters and you understand what the first three chapters are saying, it'll change your life. I'm going to read you an excerpt of what it means to live according to the Spirit. Right? Because according to. uh, Right. What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it the fact that He knows me. I am graven on the palms of His hand, I am never out of His mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, he knows me as one who loves me, and there is not a moment when his eye is off of me or his attention is distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. When you live according to the flesh, you live chasing, chasing uh, to accomplish who you are or what you are. Because you think if you, if you can chase that, then you will accomplish who and what you are set out to do. But those who live according to the spirit live according to this truth. That you are who you are Because God knows you. It's not uh, who I... It's not, okay, if I can be who I want to be, and then I can get to this point, I do this point, then I can get to know God. And so I want to be a good person. I want to be a good Christian. So I am going to do the things that a good Christian does. And I'm going to pray the prayers. And I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to feed the hungry and house the poor and do all these things. And then I will be accepted by God and I will be accepted by God's people. But the gospel says this. And, those, and the, the truth of the spirit says this. That you are not a Christian. And that you are not saved because of what you do or who you are. But you are who you are because God knows you. God knows you. We are not doing all these things so that we can get to know God. I mean, we are doing these things to get to know God more, but that only happens because God has first known us. You know, at our college large group this past Wednesday, uh, before we started, the dudes were jamming out, and they said, and you know, they're singing, do you love your Jesus deep down in your heart? And we sing that song to the little kids, they're screaming out yes I love Jesus but what if they don't (laughs) what if they don't or what if you do you do want to love Jesus you want to have a relationship with him and maybe this is you right now but you're struggling I don't know why I'm doing this in my head but you're struggling right that bible has been sitting on your on your uh bedside dress bedside what do you call it nightstand like nightstand right it's been sitting there for weeks. You could see the dust. You haven't touched that thing. You, and you're like, oh, I want to read it, but I can't. And people are inviting you to the prayers. Or you need to, you're you like, all right, this time, you know, I'm going I'm to set a time. I'm going to pray every, every day, every week. And it's just not happening. Or you want to grow in a fervor for uh, whatever, the word of God or being with the people of God. But it's, it's just not happening. And yet you want it to. And we see time and time again, when we are asked the question, do you love your Jesus deep down in your heart? We can say it sometimes. We're saying the words today, right? How I love you. But I wonder, is that true of us all the time? And if, if our justification, if our standing before God is determined by how much we love Jesus, then we're all kaput. We're going to go good for a while, but we're going to hit those valleys. We're going to hit those divots. We're going to hit those holes. It's inevitable. As people who still live in a broken world among broken people, that is inevitable. So what is our hope? What is the only hope that we can cling to that will sustain us from this moment to eternity? It is not our love for Jesus. It is Jesus' love for us. It is Jesus' love for us so prominently displayed upon that cross that though he was perfect in every way and though he obeyed the law fully, just as we should have done, he obeyed the law fully and yet, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was crucified upon that cross. Why? So he could start a new religion? So he could, no. He did that because he loves you because he wants to have a relationship with you. Because he wants to justify you before the Father. And he wants to get rid of your hope in yourself. The hope that is going to falter, that is going to fail inevitably. And he wants to replace it with a love and a hope that is grounded in the one thing that will never, ever change and will never be, able to, never be taken away from you, which is the love of God. In the very next verse, Paul says, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And the praise can come up now. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. When we shift our mindset from that of the flesh, from that of trying to appease who we think we are and who, are, who we ought to be, even if they're good things, right? Oh, I'm off, I, I need to be a person who obeys their parents perfectly or I need to be someone who uh, excels in school or I need to be someone who is liked or I need to be someone who makes a lot of money so I can support whatever it is. If we shift from that mindset to a mindset of the Spirit, to a life of the Spirit that says, in so many ways, I do not measure up. And even in the things where I do measure up, it exhausts me. It spends me. And yet, I am accepted. I am loved. I am forgiven. Not because of anything I am, or of anything I know, or anything I do, but because of the love of my Savior, Jesus Christ and if we can shift our mindset to that of the Spirit, then we will no longer be constrained by the life we think we're supposed to have. But we will be freed to live the life God has created for us to have. Because if you live according to the Spirit, if you are according to the Spirit, you can end your search for purpose and meaning. Because those who are saved by grace through faith If you are saved by grace through faith, then everything that you do is imbued with eternal significance. Everything that you do is because God has known you and God has loved you and God loves you now. Paul writes to the Corinthians, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How is that possible if first God has not imbued you with his glory? And therefore, we can eat and we can drink and we can study and we can work and we can have relationships for the glory of God because we live and walk according to the Spirit, because the Spirit lives in us, because God has known us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question that we did last week. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How can we do that? Because God knows you and God loves you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that at one time, as it says in Ephesians, we were uh, walking in darkness, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, drowning in our sin, drowned in our sin. We were dead in our uh, trespasses and sins. And yet the light broke through and you came down and you saved us from our sins. It was entirely a work of God. And so though... We have struggled and we have strived to live and to justify ourselves according to to the flesh. Lord God, would you remind us that we are spirit walkers and we are spirit livers and that may we set our minds according to the spirit, according to this truth, that I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Thank you, Lord, that you have taken the penalty for our sin upon that cross. Thank you, Lord, that you call us yours and that we can call you mine. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather as a church to exhort one another to this truth that we can remind one another when, when, when things seem hopeless, when we don't feel sure about ourselves, when we are filled with anxiety, that we can turn to one another and that we can encourage one another. You are loved by God. You are known by God. You are saved by grace through faith. Lord, may we be a church. May we be a people that walks according to the Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray.